0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: My dear cardio nerds, it's Amit Coyle. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Atrial Fibrillation Series. In today's discussion, episode lead Dr. Theodore Donison and series co-chairs Drs. Colin Blumenthal and Kelly Arps. We'll discuss screening, detection, and diagnosis of atrial fibrillation with faculty expert Dr. Ben Friedman. If you've ever found yourself deep in thought, pondering when and how to screen for atrial fibrillation, how much AF is enough to be concerning, whether AF is a risk factor or a risk marker for stroke, how to incorporate information from wearable device technologies and more, well then, join us and get nerdy because this episode is for you.
2: Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This series is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb and the Pfizer Alliance. Of course, all Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. We have collaborated with VCU to provide free CME for the episode. See the episode page for the link to claim CME and relevant disclosures. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And with that, let's get nerdy.
3: Hi, Cardio Nerds. This is Kelly Arps, co-chair for the Atrial Fibrillation Series, back with Colin and Dan. Today, we'll be learning about the diagnosis and detection of atrial fibrillation, together with Dr. Ben Friedman and Dr. Theodora Donison. Welcome, and allow me to introduce Dr. Theodora Donison. She is a third-year internal medicine resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. She completed her medical school at the Carol Davila University of Medicine and Pharmacy in her home country of Romania, and is a rising cardiology fellow at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She was part of the first class to graduate from the Cardio Nerds Academy, has stayed on as Academy Chief for House Thomas, and we are
1: very excited to have her here with us today. Hi, everybody, and thank you for the very kind words. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Ben Friedman, who is Director of External Affairs at the Heart Research Institute and leader of its Heart Rhythm and Stroke Prevention Group, Honorary Professor of Cardiology at the University of Sydney Charles Perkins Center, He formed the AFSCREEN International Collaboration in 2015, which now has over 190 members from 38 countries, including some of the most prolific names in atrial fibrillation research. In 2011, he was awarded the Order of Australia Medal for Service to Medicine as a clinician, educator and researcher. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Teo,
3: I hear that we have a busy schedule today at the CardioNerd's Atrial Fibrillation Clinic. Let's get started
1: with our first patient. Sure. We'll start by talking about Ms. Amy Oderone, a 65-year-old woman with a history of hypertension who comes to discuss her risk of atrial fibrillation. Her father recently had a stroke and is bedbound. The cause of the stroke was deemed cardioembolic after he was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Ms. Oderone is his caretaker and she would like to know if she has or is at risk to develop atrial fibrillation and have a stroke like her father did. Let's start by talking about why it's important to screen for atrial fibrillation.
2: Theo, that is a great place to start. I've seen estimates suggesting that 15% of people with atrial fibrillation are currently underdiagnosed and that 75% of those individuals would be eligible for anticoagulation. So Dr. Freeman, we know that the European guidelines recommend opportunistic screening for atrial fibrillation in individuals 65 and above in terms of age whereas the American guidelines recommend pursuing atrial fibrillation detection in patients with cryptogenic strokes and those with device-recorded atrial high-rate episodes. But they don't mention specific screening criteria. Can you expand more on what opportunistic screening means and how you apply this in practice? Does, for example, Ms. Amy Oderone qualify for atrial fibrillation screening?
4: Well, good question, but opportunistic screening is really when someone comes to visit your office for another reason and you do something like feel the pulse which unfortunately not that many people do anymore or you take a blood pressure and you see that the rate is irregular. So this is opportunistic screening. You could do it opportunistically as we've done with just uh, a single lead rhythm strip which takes 30 seconds or many other ways but opportunistic means people have come in for another consultation and you do it just because they're there. So the U.S., Preventive Services Task Force doesn't recognize opportunistic screening as screening. They call it case finding or detection or usual care. Unfortunately, usual care is not done usually. In a study by The Economist, a journal that many of you won't read, done about four years ago, they asked 100 physicians from 20 different countries, what proportion of patients did they screen opportunistically in the past two weeks? And In the United States, it was about 15%, and this is people over the age of 65 who is recommended by the European guidelines. Australia has similar guidelines to European, and it was only about 11%. So opportunistic screening is not currently done commonly by primary care physicians. First of all, that's the definition of what it is. The thing that we need to know is that if you find it when doing it opportunistically at a single time point... It's almost certainly or has a high rate of being persistent atrial fibrillation or very high burden. And in those people, the risk of the atrial fibrillation we have just shown this year is identical to people in whom atrial fibrillation is documented clinically. But if you screen more intensively, usually with electrocardiography, with continuous monitoring, then you will find shorter, briefer periods of paroxysmal AF with a lower AF burden, which probably has a different prognosis. So I think we have to determine our definitions of screening in that respect. Opportunistic or single time point on the one end of the spectrum, risk of stroke and morbidity is much the same as for clinical AF. And on the other hand, if you're looking at continuous recordings, you'll find much shorter episodes of paroxysmal AF Quite frequently, which may not have the same prognostic significance. And I think that's the difference in the definitions and possibly why the US guidelines don't say anything about it, because those guidelines are thinking much more of continuous monitoring rather than if you look at world guidelines, taking the pulse is actually recommended by the World Heart Federation's roadmap. And that's opportunistic. And that's something that I was the co-chair of. So I think we have to look at horses for courses here when we talk about opportunistic screening.
3: Thank you so much for clarifying those definitions and the way that the U.S. guidelines and other guidelines may, may approach that usual care. It's particularly interesting to think about with the current focus on early rhythm control, how ECG monitoring or more prolonged monitoring may help us detect patients who have a much lower burden of an earlier stage of disease. And we also know that early diagnosis is important since the very first manifestation of atrial fibrillation may be a debilitating stroke.
4: Yes, uh, Kelly, that, that's correct. I mean, if you look at all ischemic strokes, It's about the third rule. A third of ischemic strokes are related to atrial fibrillation and a third of those strokes, which amount to roughly 10%, are related to atrial fibrillation that was found at the very first time at the time of stroke. So my usual thoughts on this are that stroke is a poor early warning sign of atrial fibrillation. If we could find it beforehand by screening or by detection in primary care opportunistically, then it would be much better to do it that way and treat it before the stroke. So that's the rationale of screening. If you're looking at after-stroke, of course, and this is sort of one of your questions, sort of it once you've had a stroke, you will find some people during the admission or when they present who have atrial fibrillation that's first diagnosed. But if you monitor them afterwards, you'll find another 10 or 15% who will have atrial fibrillation on more prolonged monitoring. And exactly what you do for that and how you do it is sort of still a bit of a bone of contention, not completely agreed on by everyone. But if you do find atrial fibrillation, particularly more prolonged high-burden atrial fibrillation after a stroke, then that changes your management from being one of aspirin or antiplatelet drugs to one of oral anticoagulant.
1: Thank you so much for going over that, Dr. Friedman. And you're actually kind of starting to answer one of my other questions. What's your personal approach to searching for occult atrial fibrillation in individuals who've already had a
4: stroke? Well, I think the guidelines now say that they should have 72 hours of ECG monitoring in hospital. That's not always done and certainly not in all places around the world because not all stroke units have monitoring. Even if they do, stroke units staffed by stroke nurses who may not be experienced in electrocardiographic monitoring. So it may be missed even in those stroke units. We did a very simple study in a number of places, including China, Hong Kong, and Australia, where we got the nurses to, instead of taking the pulse during their routine OBS post-stroke, they took around a single-lead handheld ECG monitor, and they found more atrial fibrillation than a single 24-hour halter monitor that was the standard of care and not often done. So simple things will get you more. But if you monitor for a period when people are in the stroke unit. That gets you a number of patients. If you don't find it, then the things that might guide you towards doing more prolonged monitoring, say putting in an implanted cardiac monitor, might be some factors like older age, certainly if you have imaging which suggests that it's an embolic stroke of uncertain origin, ESIS, or cryptogenic stroke. If you have um, left atrial enlargement on an echo or left atrial enlargement on an ECG may give you a clue. If you've got natriuretic peptides, those sorts of clues may lead you to do more prolonged monitoring. And there are different ways of doing this with either cutaneous patches or multiple holder recordings or an implanted cardiac monitor, which is quite expensive and hard to implement all around the world. Thanks, Dr. Freeman, for that. Your approach to searching for atrial fibrillation in the post-stroke
2: patient is really helpful and fascinating how you were able to show that using a single lead in the stroke unit was, was beneficial. And it just really makes sense that if you don't look, you're not going to find, you know, atrial fibrillation post-stroke and also how you fine tune your level of intensity of the search for atrial fibrillation in post-stroke patients. By other clues like BMP and, and enlarged left atrium, it really does help fine-tune things and make yourself feel more aggressive when it comes to a high suspicion for atrial fibrillation as the etiology of stroke. You know, like so many other conditions that we screen for, it's clear that the detection of atrial fibrillation through screening depends on the population screened and the duration and intensity of screening, particularly in the 25% of atrial fibrillation patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation.
1: Yes, there are multiple tools available for atrial fibrillation screening. And uh, Dr. Friedman, you've already mentioned some of these, uh, the plain old pulse palpation, oscillometry, continuous ambulatory heart rhythm, ECG monitoring with external or subcutaneous devices. Dr. Friedman, what are your favorite tools for screening for atrial fibrillation in your patients and how do you tailor the mechanism and duration of monitoring to each scenario?
4: Well, it's a good question, to I think my favourite tool has been a handheld ECG. I guess I was the very first person to use an core monitor before it was registered for use anywhere in the world. Partly because one of the inventors is American and two of the co-inventors on the patent are Australian. And as I had access to this early, the reason that I like this, it gives a cardiac medical quality ECG, and it gives you a diagnosis within thirty seconds. And for the you know the PPG photoplethysmograph or oscillometric ones, you always need an ECG confirmation of the diagnosis. So if you can do a, a thirty second ECG as easily as you can do an oscillometric or PPG, why bother with the other if it's available? So that's that's my sort of favorite method. Now there are other tools, many other handheld ECGs. One of them is a Zenicore device, which was used in the stroke stop study. This one is a thumb ECG, and it's very good for older people because they don't get distracted by mobile phone technology, which they often don't understand. All they do is put their fingers or their thumbs on this ECG, which is easier to use for them than fingers, and it records an ECG, and it's transmitted to a website via the Internet of Things, and it gives you a really nice recording, which can be analyzed, and again, they do it a few times a day. This was the basis of the stroke stop study. So I think if you're monitoring or looking for older people with repeated snapshots, you will find less paroxysmal AF, but what you find will be a high burden. We've shown that in simulations. If you're looking for any atrial fibrillation, you need to have some continuous monitoring, and that might require a cutaneous patch or an an implanted cardiac monitor. That will give you all the beats. But as I said before, you've got a, a bit of a balance If you look longer, for instance, if you insert a cardiac monitor for a year, you'll record 31 million seconds of ECG. If you do a single recording, you do 30 seconds. If you take a few snapshots over a few weeks, you get a few thousand seconds. And if you have two weeks, you might get one or two million seconds. So you can see the harder you look, the more you will find and the more of the non-significant ones you may find. We still don't know the significance of those ones, but that's how I would like to tailor it. In other words, if you really need to see everything, you need to have a continuous one. If you're wanting to find things that are high risk, and if you want something that's less expensive, then you go with snapshots. If you're in primary care, then the easiest thing is to do to just put your finger on the pulse. That doesn't cost anything, no technology, easy to do. We're all trained to do it. No one does it. And um, so I think, you know, you got it right. We have to tailor it to the purpose that we're looking for.
1: I love it, Dr. Freeman. You really were an early adapter of all of these technologies.
4: Well, yes, I was an early adopter. And I mean, I was an early adopter of things like faxes. <laughs> but I think you also then have to place it into context of, of how it's going to be used. I think that's the real clue to this business. You have to sort of stand back a little bit and think, what am I trying to do? These technologies are very seductive. We have a great technology that I was part of um, through my work at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, where with a camera, you could get five people sitting in front of you, you train the camera on their face, and you look at beat-to-beat variation in the color of the face. And with this, you essentially were doing a PPG, And we were able to diagnose atrial fibrillation in five people at a time, whether it was sinus or not. It's very seductive, but how you actually do this and the implications of sort of training a camera on your patients in the waiting room, that's another question. To try and get more people to have screening done, we introduced uh, and we've just trialed a kiosk, which is where people come into a waiting room. The appointment in the medical record triggers, if they're in focus, like they're over 65 and they don't, don't have atrial fibrillation, it triggers a QR code being generated that's handed to the patient. They sit at the station. It reads the QR code and then gets them to do an ECG at the station. And as soon as that's recorded, it goes straight into the medical record, into the EMR. And when the patient comes to see the doctor, they've got a diagnosed ECG in their notes. So we were hoping, and this does actually increase the proportion of people who get screened, and that's relevant for some places, whereas in the vital study in the United States, it was done by the nurse or assistant who took all the vitals just before people came in. And that doesn't happen in every primary care place in the United States, but certainly does in some of the more affluent ones. So again, it's um, tailoring it to where you are wanting to look for, that the devices are increasing in, in number. Wow. Oh my gosh. As somebody who loves new
2: toys and electronics, this is really enticing. And it's just also just shows how much of a emphasis there is in terms of improving technologies to really bring care to as many uh, people as we can. And you know, hopefully some of these amazing inventions will pan out and help catch more patients with atrial fibrillation and be adopted to many other areas in medicine where screening is important and where the automation or just the ability to do it in a, in a fluid way and in, in a reproducible way is going to be very important. So speaking of atrial fibrillation screening methods, smartphones, watches, and Fitbits are nearly ubiquitous and their algorithms to detect atrial fibrillation have uh, very high reported positive and negative predictive values, over 90%. So, Dr. Friedman, what are your thoughts on the role of information provided by smart devices and watches, and how should that be incorporated
4: into clinical practice? Well, look, one of the things you mentioned was that these smart watches and and devices, I noticed that Fitbits have now been bought by Google, so we have to sort of replace Fitbit by Google. But when you say they're nearly ubiquitous, I think you have to say where and in what age group. So it may be true that they're nearly ubiquitous in the United States. They're not nearly ubiquitous in most parts of Africa or in many parts of Asia or South America. So that's the first thing. We need to look at geography. The second thing is we need to look at age. Um, They are not nearly ubiquitous in people over 65 or over 75 who are the ones you really most wanted to detect AF in. Um, If you look at the Apple Heart Study, which was really quite incredible because it enrolled over 400,000 in a matter of months. The median age of the people was 40. In the Huawei heart study, the median age of the people who were enrolled was about 35. So you've got new technology that can detect AF and being used by people in whom you may not want to detect AF. This is now consumer-led screening. They're doing it, even though we don't even know whether we should be doing it as medical people or public health people. And yes, they can diagnose um, ECG, but the sort of the positive predictive value will really depend on the proportion of the population that you're screening who has the condition. So the prevalence of the condition will determine that. So those are important things that we need to look at. The positive predictive accuracy can be quite good, but it is highly dependent on the population, the prevalence in that population that you're looking at. If you find AF in a 35 or 40-year-old, they usually won't have a chads vas score that's high enough to treat them with anticoagulants. So what do you do next? And um, unfortunately, it can lead to many different examinations and investigations which were not really required lead really, to some concern as well. So I think that when we, when we find it in a young person, which is what we're doing here, the people who buy smartphones and smartwatches and Fitbits are not the 65, 70, 75-year-olds where we're trying to prevent stroke. What should we do when we find AF? Well, I think the knee-jerk reaction should not be oral anticoagulants. It should be attention to lifestyle factors. It should be dropping weight. It should be going on diet. It should be doing physical activity. It should be reducing alcohol, making sure the blood pressure is really well controlled, checking for diabetes or pre-diabetes. All of these things may reduce the risk of developing clinical atrial fibrillation or persistent atrial fibrillation in the future. So I think we have to, again, look at the information that they give us and then try and reframe what we respond to it as, as clinicians because this is now not being done by us. We are not giving people the device. They are buying it. It's being directly marketed to them. And we need to be able to determine as doctors how we respond to consumer-led screening. And that is a different story, and I hope I've emphasized some of the different considerations that we need to think about in this scenario.
3: Thank you so much. It's really important to recognize that there's a significant discrepancy between the average population that has access and uses these commercial screening tools and the population who's at risk of atrial fibrillation. I thought it was really relevant to recognize the opportunity for early lifestyle intervention when there's an incidental finding of atrial fibrillation. You, you mentioned detection of AFib in people in whom we didn't necessarily expect to find it. You know, Similarly, I'd love to talk about a scenario that you know, I've seen frequently in, in electrophysiology clinic, which is when patients who have an implanted pacemaker or defibrillator are found during routine follow up visits to have runs of atrial fibrillation that are detected by their device. Of course, we know that device detected atrial high rate episodes are not necessarily atrial fibrillation. They could be other atrial tachyarrhythmias or could be caused by oversensing. Is there any data to suggest the specificity of these detected episodes for being true atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter? And do you have any tips for approaching this scenario?
4: Well, I think the important thing is to know how long these episodes last. The longer they last for, the more likely they are to be atrial fibrillation. But if we can, and there is a the possibility of examining the atrial electrogram, which is becoming more and more common in pacemakers and other devices, then you can really differentiate it. So I think, number one, the longer episodes, the longer it is, the more likely it is to be AFib. Number two, and if you've got the opportunity, you need to and validate it by looking at an electrogram. So that's the sort of general tips for that. But, you know, the AF that you find with that does have an increased risk of stroke. People have used a cutoff of five minutes because that's what the, the devices do. But anyway, I think the key tip is that the longer the episode is, the more likely it is to be AF, but there's no substitute for looking at the electrogram.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying that. And also, Jumping on this concern, there's also uncertainty regarding the minimum atrial fibrillation burden that will increase the thromboembolic risk. There have been studies that explore duration of 5 minutes to 24 hours to be significant. There are also studies that show there isn't a clear temporal relationship between device-detected high-rate episodes and strokes either. Only a small number of patients experience arrhythmia in the month before a stroke. So Dr. Freeman, what do you use in your clinical practice? How much AFib does it take for you to start treatment?
4: I think it's a good question. I don't think there's a a complete answer to this. There will be answers because there are a couple of trials going on which will look at using the cutoff of five minutes and looking to see whether if you give anticoagulant for these, you will prevent stroke. They may give us the answer. If you look within the ASAID trial, you find that only the episodes that were more than 24 hours in duration as a single episode were the ones that contributed to the increased incidence of stroke. In other studies, it looks like if you look at a burden of more than five hours in 24 hours, that was a reasonable cut point. But at each cut point, it's determined by the underlying ChazVAS score. So, in other words, if people have a low risk anyway, then the risk of getting a stroke is low no matter what. And if you've got a higher stroke risk, then shorter episodes may be more important. The reason why I don't think we'll find a very clear cut-off point is that atrial fibrillation may, may be as much a risk marker as a risk factor for stroke. And so it may be a marker of an underlying atrial myopathy. And so if that's the case, then it may not be a perfect cut point because it's not just a risk factor. And I think that's the important thing. The greater burdens of AF may actually also indicate a worse atrial myopathy. So in that case, those people will have a greater propensity for getting cardioembolic strokes because of the underlying atrial myopathy. And as you said, in many cases, there's no AF in the six months before the stroke. And quite often, the AF occurs only after stroke. So we have to say, well, it's not just AF that's important. If you look a bit more closely at many of the episodes where AF occurs before the stroke, you'll find that there is a stronger temporal relationship in the five days before stroke. And it's highest early in one or two days, and then it drops down over five days to be less. So I I believe that there is an interaction between the atrial myopathy and the AF, that AF is both a risk marker and a risk factor for stroke. And in many of the people who don't have paroxysmal AF, they have it there all the time, well then we don't have this issue. And we, we just know that in those people, even the vascular and the underlying risk of, of, of a myopathy will probably determine whether you get a stroke or not. So, We were not going to find a very clear cut. Five minutes, 10 minutes, I don't think that's going to be the answer. But in general, the longer you get, the more likely, and the shorter you get, and the less burden, the less likely you are to to be important. I just wanted
0: to jump in a little bit on what you were just saying. I think you were mentioning a couple different pieces of data, maybe the newest piece of data that you touched on with the five, five and a half minutes being uh, from Dr. Singer showing that with a larger cohort of you know almost 450,000 people, that they did find a temporal relationship between AFib and stroke when previous studies had not. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on the, the idea of atrial myopathy, which I think you already touched on quite a bit, versus whether previous studies lacked statistical power to really determine correlation between strokes and, and AFib and whether that might have affected our ability to determine that correlation.
4: Yeah, you you raise an important point, Colin. First of all, in a lot of these studies, the strokes were not adjudicated. So we don't know if we're talking about cardioembolic strokes or strokes that were related like small vessel disease, where you wouldn't expect them to be due to cardioembolism. So that's the first thing. Second thing is small numbers of strokes in many of the studies, particularly with device-detected make it harder to get statistical power. But you clearly get a number of strokes where there has absolutely been no atrial fibrillation before the stroke and only afterwards. And it's difficult to say, well, the AF caused that stroke. So you have to re- recalibrate and say, well, and maybe AF at least is a marker. When we see in the very original one that Mintu Turak was the first author, it definitely did show a temporal relationship that was much smaller, whereas the one by Danny Singer more recently was much more powerful in showing this. So I believe there is no doubt now that AF is important as a risk factor. So AF will produce part of the Verkho's triad of stasis, but it is not the only thing. And by itself, AF doesn't produce strokes unless you have those other Chads risk factors. How does that work? I believe that it's best answered by there being an atrial myopathy that works in tandem and in parallel with atrial fibrillation. So if you have both, it's bad. If you have one only, you can still get a stroke. I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah, that was super, super interesting. This is actually something that I've been thinking about for a little bit. So uh, I, I couldn't uh, pass up the opportunity to, to ask you about it because I think that's just a, some really interesting sort of fine points here. Just switching gears slightly here, we've been talking about AF detected through screening, but I'm curious what your approach is with perioperative AFib. We know that perioperative AFib is associated with worse short and long-term outcomes, leading to increased perioperative morbidity, higher stroke rates, more readmissions, and lower survival. Do you start additional workup when you find patients with perioperative AFib, and do you start these patients on anticoagulant treatment right when they're diagnosed perioperatively, if appropriate, by the surgical team?
4: Look, I think we have to first of all define perioperative if you're talking about after general surgery or if you're talking about cardiac bypass surgery. So in cardiac bypass surgery where you open the pericardium and you fiddle with the atrium, and the incidence of perioperative atrial fibrillation is much greater, 20 or 30%. Yeah. There'd be lots and lots of studies and lots and lots of studies trying to reduce it. We've also looked at a study where we took patients who had atrial fibrillation perioperatively from cardiac bypass and we monitored them. We gave them a handheld ECG to take home for a month and got them to do it four times a day. And lo and behold, 25% of them had recurrent atrial fibrillation that was asymptomatic. So, Looking at it post-op, you'll find that a lot of these people continue even after they've gone back into sinus rhythm. The prognosis of post-op, post-cardiac bypass, that sort of perioperative AF, is not as bad. The stroke risk and the death is not as bad for those people who have perioperative after a non-cardiac surgical procedure. And also, when people who get atrial fibrillation in an admission for another condition. So this is when you look at their discharge diagnosis, AF will be a secondary discharge diagnosis. Those people have a much worse prognosis as far as AF than people even have a primary discharge diagnosis of AF. I think that's an important consideration because once you've developed atrial fibrillation during a non-cardiac procedure or with another admission, I think This is really still high risk, the same risk as clinical AF, and I would anticoagulate. People who've looked at the prognosis of these have shown that it is just as bad, and so I would not put it down to, oh, this has been provoked because of the fever or what the surgeon did or what the anesthetic did, all those sorts of things. I think this is, maybe it's an AF stress test, and if you get that, then your risk is high, and it's not quite so high in after cardiac bypass surgery and there I would temper it with perhaps looking for other indications to anticoagulate them. Gotcha.
0: So so just to kind of summarize, after a cardiac surgery where they're opening the pericardium, et cetera, not necessarily a clear situation where you would immediately anticoagulate them, but if they had sepsis, if they had non-cardiac surgery, those would be situations where you would say they kind of, quote unquote, failed an an atrial fibrillation stress test and would start the main anticoagulation.
4: Yeah. So you just take the decision as you would if someone had atrial fibrillation that you detected clinically in any other way. Whereas I don't think the answer is quite there for what we do. And there are some trials now looking at it in perioperative. But my view is that the risk is high enough that we should anticoagulate for non-cardiac and for cardiac, maybe. But we may have to sort of nuance that a bit better. Yeah,
0: that, that is super helpful because, you know, at, at least I know for our consult service, atrial fibrillation flutter is the the number one thing we get called about. And we very, very often get called about this exact question. So that's going to help quite a few people to just flesh that out a little bit.
4: That may be a sort of one one sort of scenario where you could do trials of wearables afterwards or give people a handheld to sort of do a few times a day. And if you see atrial fibrillation of a high burden afterwards, that would certainly prompt you to be more keen on anticoagulant. But my view is that if you get it at any time after a non-cardiac procedure, that's bad news. That's super helpful. So it sounds like from
0: everything we've been talking about here, AFib really checks all of the boxes for a good setup for disease screening given it as large prevalence, good diagnostic methods, specific treatments which you can start patients on, which significantly change outcomes. However, there doesn't seem to be a standardized screening process yet. Dr. Friedman, why do you think that is? Is this a cost-benefit issue or why isn't there a
4: clear, this is the way you screen for AFib sort of approach? It's a really interesting question and I struggled with this because the United States Preventive Services Task Force, when they looked at it in 2018, gave an I recommendation. An I recommendation says there's insufficient information to know whether it does more good than harm. And in 2022, they put out their update, which again gave a deny recommendation. And I remember, and I wrote a, an article with Rod Passman taking them to task a little bit. But in fact, we don't we don't have the answer there yet. Let me just sort of give you an analogy. Hypertension and atrial fibrillation are two things you can screen for in the office, and the screening device actually gives you the diagnosis. Now, in many other places, you do a screening test like occult blood. It doesn't give you for colon cancer. It doesn't give you the diagnosis, whereas the screening test here gives you the diagnosis. For many years, screening for high blood pressure, because we knew if you lowered blood pressure, you reduced all sorts of cardiovascular complications. USPSTF said, yeah, that's fine. You can screen for hypertension. Even before there was a trial showing a strategy of screening is better than a strategy of no screening. AF came later. And so the criterion was not just, oh yes, you found disease, that's fine. And in fact, if you do it opportunistically, as they did for blood pressure, because everyone got a blood pressure when you came in to see your doctor. If you do it opportunistically, what you find is actually you're doing disease detection, and it could be facilitated disease detection. It's not really screening, so they don't regard it as screening. What they're talking about is much more prolonged monitoring, and for that, you have to pass a higher bar, and the higher bar is this, that you have to show that if you have a A protocol that says we will do everyone over this age with this sort of monitoring and we will have fewer strokes in the active group than in the control group. That's the bar that they're holding us to. And that's the bar that most organizations that control the purse strings will say is required. They don't even talk about single time measurement that's opportunistic. They don't regard that as screening. And yet it's the easiest thing to do you get disease detection of people with mostly persistent, and we know what the prognosis now is when it's untreated, because we've just done this in Hong Kong, where we screen 12,000 people, and we found atrial fibrillation in the expected proportion, and in Hong Kong, only 25% of the patients are treated with anticoagulant. So you almost have a natural history study, and you know that the Stroke rate in those is just the same as people with clinically detected atrial fibrillation has been previously diagnosed if they're not treated. So for that, you probably don't have to do trials. But for the more, more aggressive monitoring, that's where we don't know. And the two studies, the stroke stop study and the loop study that were done and reported last year in Lancet, and I had the privilege of writing the editorials to both of those papers, we didn't get an answer. They were conventionally negative for stroke. The stroke stop study was positive with a combined endpoint. But the loop study, which found AF in 30% of people, 90% of whom were treated with oral anticoagulant, did not show a significant reduction in stroke. There's a lot of reasons why they didn't. But it's partly that you have to show that it's effective, not just cost effective, but effective before USPSCF will say yes, you could do it. The single time point, we've shown that it's likely to be highly cost effective. And that's not probably the issue, but it's the issue for more intensive screening. And and we don't know the answer. We will know with meta-analysis in some way or a much bigger trial, the safer trial that's being done in 120,000 people. You have to look at a lot of people to be able to show a strategy of, of one strategy is going to be better than no strategy at all. So we have to wait a little bit, but, but that's a long-winded answer to a rather complex question.
3: Wow, that's really valuable insight, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you know, studies show in the upcoming years. Dr. Friedman, you, you know, as you've described to us, you've led multiple global atrial fibrillation screening initiatives and helped to develop novel technology in this space. You're now leading an international multidisciplinary collaborative effort How did the AF Screen International Collaboration start? And can you expand any more on your experience incorporating atrial fibrillation screening strategies in different parts of the world?
4: The AF Screen International Collaboration was an idea that I hatched after attending a meeting of the European Heart Rhythm Association and the Atrial Fibrillation Network of Germany. It was in Nice. It was a group of about 80 people who, experts in AF, who gathered to talk about it. I gave the first talk about screening, and at the end of that, people really said, we should do something a bit more, and how do we do this? And I was impressed by getting a group of people from many different places together, Uh, and that's where I started that in 2015. It was a year after that, that meeting. I got a group of cardiologists initially together, and but we expanded it. So it's not just cardiologists and it's not just EP fellows or EP docs. We've got general practitioners, primary care physicians. There is neurologists, stroke neurologists, very important in this. Geriatricians, general physicians. We have epidemiologists and health economists. There are nurses. There are pharmacists where we did quite a bit of screening. There are all sorts of other allied health people. There's one or two lawyers there are patient representatives, and we have 38 countries. I think there you get the opportunity to see a much more global picture, but also a picture that's that's informed by not just DP people, but by generalists, by people who are health practitioners, who are not doctors, and by patient groups, and by epidemiologists and economists. And you get a picture from around the world. Just for an example... At the moment, we're trying to run a screening program with May Measurement Month, an offshoot of the International Society of Hypertension, and screen about a million to a million and a half people each year in 90 different countries. I thought that was a fantastic opportunity, and we've joined forces with them this year to do a pilot study, also screening for atrial fibrillation, the two most important reversible or preventable causes of stroke. One of the countries that wanted to join in this pilot is Mozambique. Mozambique is a country in Africa which has about the same population as Australia, about 26 million or so. But in Australia, we have about 6,000 cardiologists. In Mozambique, they have 15 cardiologists. Some countries in Africa have only one cardiologist. In Mozambique, they have a million, more than a million people who are under antiretroviral therapy. So you have to sort of really have a more global idea of the sort of the shape of atrial fibrillation across the globe. In many countries, rheumatic heart disease is a really important cause, and yet we don't see it at all in the United States. And in Australia, sadly, we see it only in Aboriginal populations. First Nations people get AF about 20 years earlier than non-Aboriginal people, and this week is National Reconciliation Week, where we listen to Aboriginal people and we incorporate their voice. In your First Nations people in the United States, I've done a study in Oklahoma with Stavros Stavrakis in a tribal Indian clinic in Oklahoma, and what we found was atrial fibrillation occurring in people who are between the age of 55 and 65. Now, this is something we, we sort of hardly even mention, but I think a, a global approach is required if we're sort of thinking about the diagnosis more globally. So I encourage you all to sort of think out of the box, not just in your own whole, and look at the sort of health inequalities in your own country. Think about whether atrial fibrillation may be greater in, in groups with health inequalities and in First Nations peoples. And then think about how that might pan out around the world. Because if you try road map for the World Heart Federation, as I had to do with uh, Gerhard Hendricks, the author of the ESC guideline for 2020, you really do need to think somewhat differently and have expectations that are different. So, my sort of lesson I hope to you is to think, to think sort of globally within your own country, and then to, to think about. The problems of high-income countries versus low-income countries, and people who are underserved in your own country.
3: Yes, there's so so many different factors to think about when you think about thinking broadly and bringing in diverse perspectives. You highlighted people from different education and clinical backgrounds, even within the medical professions, as well as thinking about global populations and the different populations within our own countries. That's really valuable.
4: Well, look, I I think this is the lesson that I had. It started with me thinking rather more specifically, but as I got into it, I realized how different things are. And, you know, you go to a country like China, where I've done a number of studies in Shanghai, which is one of the largest cities. But as soon as you go outside the largest teaching hospital and into the community health centers close to the city center, you'll find the rate of anticoagulation is about 10 to 15%. Yet, if you do a study in a teaching hospital in Beijing, you'll say it's 60%. So even within countries, there are very big, and and China is a big country, there are very big disparities. So I really encourage cardio nerds to use take this opportunity to think a bit more globally. I certainly had my eyes open by doing this, and it's caused me to reshape my whole thinking about life and about medicine.
1: I really appreciate you sharing your perspective with us, Dr. Friedman, and sharing the way you put put the foundation for the AF Screen International Collaboration. I really love the fact that you don't only include physicians, that you have a wide variety of uh, professionals working on this goal to kind of better understand atrial fibrillation globally. And I, I really love this. Dr. Friedman, I know that we are focusing on atrial fibrillation this episode, but because this is a cardio nerds tradition, we're going to ask, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology?
4: It's interesting. I have to tell you, when I had done my basic physician training, um, I liked two areas. One was gastroenterology and one was cardiology. And I'd originally been given a cardiology job and they said no, that we had too many people in gastro, they couldn't give me that job. Um, And so I decided on cardiology. I liked cardiology because you could do something at that time. This was a few years ago, I have to say. You could do something that you couldn't do in many other specialties. You could actually make a huge difference by what you did. But then I got a phone call after I'd been to the professor of cardiology and said, yes, I want to do cardiology. And they they said, could you come and see us? I, I crossed over the road because it was on the other side of the road. And the head of gastro said, we've uh, been able to create an extra position. We'd like to give you that position. And I said, mm, yeah, I think so. And I walked across the road, and all of a sudden, I saw colonoscopes um, going down lots of people's backsides over my life. And I thought, no, I don't think so. I, I'd sort of already made up my mind, and I'd been across the road to say to the cardiology professor, well, I've got another offer. I, I'd take that. But as I was walking away, I realized I didn't really want to do that. And I came back and said, I would changed my mind. I'll take cardiology. So it was somewhat arbitrary. I'm sure I would have been happy with almost any other profession. But the thing that really prompted me was that it was physiological and I love physiology and you could do something to improve people. And I still think that I'm sure I would have been happy doing many other things. But cardiology, I'm still very happy I chose it. And AF was only a very late interest, only the last 15 years. Before that, it was all ischemic heart disease.
3: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your atrial fibrillation expertise with us. I want to thank all of my co-hosts for this episode, Dan, Colin, and Teo. And Dr. Friedman, in particular, thank you very much for taking the time to teach us. We learned a great deal about screening and monitoring for atrial fibrillation as as well as a global perspective on doing so.
4: Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I always like speaking to fellows and people who are just about to go into the world as specialists and people who are a bit earlier in the stage so it's been a pleasure being with you cardio nerds today